All right, if we could gather in and find our seats. We're going to go ahead and get started in the book of James or the overview of James. So good morning. Um, again, I'm going to cover an overview of James. Um, I'm going to dive right into some of the difficulties as we think about uh, James and some of the challenges that we might have in order to try and understand James. So there are three major challenges that I'm going to try and address right, right away. Um, one of those challenges, in fairness, is that we don't know the Scriptures, so if by show of hands in this room, how many of you have read the entire Bible? By show of hands. How many of you read it more than once? More than twice. How many of you have any part of it memorized? How many of you have the Torah memorized? Okay. So we don't know the scriptures. In fact, if we're being honest, if we're being completely truthful, if we think about the statistics and that sort of thing that are out there, if we were to take all of the body that we have gathered here on any given Sunday, and we were to ask the question, tell us what the kingdom of heaven is. Tell us what the gospel is. And then we had that, did that all anonymously and sent it up, and we read everyone so that we weren't embarrassing anybody, but, but we read what it would be. Um, there would not be a coherent single view of what the gospel is or what the kingdom of heaven is. So, we, so the, one of the challenges is we don't know the scriptures. In Jewish culture, children at six would go to the synagogue and they would learn, they would study Scripture. By age 10, they would have the Torah memorized. So we don't know the Scriptures. So that's one of the challenges that we're faced with. The reason that that's important is because many of the, uh, many of the allusions and many of the con- much of the content that James puts forward... Um, draws from that rich history of the scriptures in the narratives, in the prophets, etc. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is we don't think like Jewish people, the Jews in that day. So we're, we're of the Western society. We are Gentile, um, more Greek in our thoughts and philosophy. So when we think about knowledge, we tend to think in very abstract and academic terms. When we think about faith, we tend to think about things like, I believe something. In other words, there's a proposition that we've ascended to, we've acknowledged it, and when we acknowledge it, we say we believe it, we know it's true. But in Jewish tradition, in Jewish history, that's not what knowledge is. In fact, if you look at scriptures, scriptures talk about um, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a child. It talks in the New Testament about who God foreknew. This idea of knowledge had to do with some, some level of intimacy, some level of experience. And in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish mind, the Jewish way of thinking is that knowledge has to do with experience. I'm going to draw a fine point on this really quickly. Um, so let's assume for a moment you have um, a condition. It's treatable, but it is terminal. It is deadly. It's treatable, with the right medication, with the right um, regimen, etc., you can be completely healed from it. So now you're going to go see a doctor, and uh, which one are you going to pick? You, are you going to pick the one who's fresh out of residency, fresh out of doctor school? Or are you going to pick the doctor who has treated this 
in every form and flavor for the last three decades. He's seen all of it and treated all of it. Which one are you going to pick? So we, we acknowledge right away that we do understand that experience matters more than this ascending to some intellectual concept or proposition, right? And in the Jewish mind, that is the way they look at knowledge. That's the way they look at thinking, and that's how they approach things. The other difficulty is this, and that is that we, by and large, have not suffered very much. When you consider the, the Jews of the dispersion, when James opens this up, he says that he's a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dysphoria. Greetings. That's how he opens it up. When, he, when we're talking about that, what, what he's actually talking about is these people who've been put out of every aspect of their life that, that they have grown up, to, grown up under and understand. Their monetary system, their education, their relationships, their status in the community, and all of that, it's all been ripped away. Instead, they're being persecuted both internally by their families, by the synagogue themselves and the religious leaders, as well as the Roman community, because at that time, um, there were many zealots in the Jewish community that were committing all kinds of acts of violence, etc., so much so that Josephus says it was as though there's no government. That's how lawless it was. And they're under that pressure because they believe in Jesus. Now, we don't suffer anything like that. We haven't experienced anything like that. There was a famine going on at that time. And by and large, if you look at me, I've never seen a famine, right? You can tell I've never seen a famine. So we just don't have that experience, okay? So those are three difficulties that, that kind of overarchingly um, point you at what James, who James is writing to and what their experience might be and how they might have understood the very words that he's going to pen. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm going to get into kind of an overview of what James actually is. So pray with me. Lord, I just, I thank you that you are God and that you've given us your word. And by revelation and by experience and by searching deeply the scriptures, you share with us exactly what it means and how to apply it. And I pray that that happens today. I pray that Christ would be magnified and put in his proper place as we would be put in our proper place, one of dependence and humility. Thank you, Lord, for all things. Teach us about James. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so here's what James is. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been woken up at some hour that you think is absolutely irrational. And you're not only woken up in this irrational hour, but now you have to get out of bed and you have to go do some work. And you're, you go outside to do this work and you're already frustrated by being tired and um, overwhelmed by all of that. And feel, it feels like very oppressive to you. And you go outside and you've got to do this work. And it might be something like gathering apples to make some cider. It might be chopping some wood. It might be feeding animals. And every part of it is difficult because it's not just that you're out doing work, it's freezing cold outside, and you've bundled up, and some of this work requires you to manually articulate your hands and that sort of thing, and take off your gloves and get cold. And we've all had the experience, I'm sure, of the point at which you feel so cold, you don't remember what your toes feel like if you wiggle them. And your hands are cold, but you gotta take your glove off, and you gotta dump the ice out of the tray so that you can 
put more water, fresh water in for the animals and you trip over things and it's cold and the breeze is blowing up your back and you're reminded of how cold you are. But you're working and you have to work a long period of time and you're struggling and it's oppressive. And in spite of all that, you continue to do the work and you know you're going to get in and when you get in, it's going to hurt to warm up. That's how cold you are. But you still have to do the work. You're responsible for it. You get in and you think you're going to immediately warm up, but you're not going to warm up. you got more work to do. The wood's got to be carried in. The fire's out. you got to light the fire. Right? So there's more work to be done. So you, get, you finally get to the point where you're about to do some work. Or about to uh, warm up is what you're about to do. And so you get the fire started. It's not warm yet. It's not raging. It's just started. You know it's going to get there. You've got some hope. You're excited about what it's going to be like. And so what you do is you grab this quilt. And this quilt is a quilt that's awesome. You're going to put this quilt on, and it's heavy. It is a heavy quilt. It is made up of all kinds of material that you, when you look at it, it's comforting for a variety of reasons. One, because it's heavy, and you put it on, you feel the weight of it, and you know that there's something really to it. And then as you look around it, you see all the little patchwork pieces that your grandmother, let's say, um, had knitted into this quilt or sewn into this quilt, right? And you see these pieces, and you see jeans and sweatshirts and, and uh, blankets and that sort of thing, and all the memories of all of these, this material that is in the quilt comes rushing back, and you're, you feel comforted because of that. You feel comforted because your grandmother made it. Maybe she has already gone on uh, to the Lord, and now your grandmother made it, and you remember when she made it, and you talked about uh, this quilt with her when she was making it and all that sort of thing, and, and it's bound and it's tight uh, together. All these pieces are nice and tight, and it's also comforting because you're starting to get warm. You're starting to feel the warmth, and now you have the hope of this quilt, the memories that come flooding back from put, sitting under this heavy quilt and the knowledge that this fire is going to soon warm you up. You're deeply encouraged by this quilt. That's the book of James. That's the book of James. Your Christian's under persecution, and you need encouragement. And James, as a shepherd, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, sends you a letter of encouragement you need strengthening and all of that sort of thing because you're facing this persecution and you got to get through it. And it seems oppressive because it is oppressive. But you're going to be comforted and you have a hope. You have a future hope. And so that is the book of James. And so what we're going to do, many people think that James is a disconnected sort of jumble of ideas that James goes into a section at a time. And that's true, but it's actually... It's actually an entire tapestry of one coherent idea. That coherent idea is that the idea of your faith, it's practical and it works. And it sustains you. That's the idea behind James. So he takes all these little panels, and we're going to go into some of these panels. And we're actually going to view some of these panels of the quilt. And we're going to explain how they fit in the various layers of those panels that would be deeply encouraging and strengthening and comforting to those that would have heard the words that James penned. So that's, that's uh, what we're going to do. So very f- first, a few things about James. James is, James in the, in the book uh, the letter, it doesn't, he doesn't mention resurrection. He doesn't mention the gospel. Instead, everything that he mentions is actually 
practical and could be found elsewhere. It's found in the Old Testament, found in the New Testament. He doesn't introduce a lot of ideas. Instead, what he does is he unpacks these ideas and he binds all of these quilt pieces together with the teachings of Jesus. So he takes what is old and full of rich history and and understanding and he binds it together very tightly so the stitching in the quilt is actually the teaching of Jesus. And specifically, most specifically, it's actually the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think about the uh, teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it was the most difficult, the hardest teaching of Jesus. And in fact, many of his disciples, upon hearing that teaching, left him. They went away. And so that's what James uses. So it's a tough, uh, it is a tough, shepherd-like, in-your-face kind of book. Um, so with that, here's where gonna, I'm going to go in and talk about see where I am in my notes. Talk about the author. Who is James? So James was written by James the Just, Jesus' brother. That's the accepted view. There are other views out there, but by and large, James was written by none other than James. Um, there's a few reasons for this that we, would, we could immediately point to, the most specific of which, obviously, I already mentioned, was the fact that he was a, an elder in Jerusalem. That would be one reason that we know that he, he wrote it. Um, another reason that we know that he wrote it is because um, not only did he, was he the, uh, the brother of Jesus, but he'd been visited by Christ specifically. So originally, James, the just, he didn't believe in Christ. In fact, um, he, hated, he hated Christ more than likely. Um, if you think about the idea of growing up in that household, the household of uh, Joseph and Mary, Jesus represented the son who never did anything wrong, always got everything right. Um, you see kind of echoes of... Um, Genesis 37, where with Joseph and his brothers, there was rivalry there. In fact, if Jesus ever got in trouble, his parents had to repent because Jesus actually wasn't the one who did it. Right? So imagine how easy would it be to get, get positive attention in that household, right? Not very easy. Well, they hated him so much. If you go to John 7, and I'm not going to read it all, but if you go to John 7, his brothers, it actually refers to the idea that his brothers, Jesus was avoiding Judea, and the reason was is they were trying to kill him in Judea. And his brothers basically said, hey, you, you're trying to draw attention to yourself. You're just ruining the family name. Why don't you go to Judea? Like, Because nobody who's a prophet who just hangs around his own town, they want to be known worldwide. Go to Judea, knowing full well that they were after Jesus. But Jesus visited James after his resurrection. James had a conversion, and he became an elder um, in the Jerusalem, uh, in the church at Jerusalem. Long and short, James is the author. Timing. So if you bookend it, J- Jesus resurrected probably about AD 33, right? And uh, James the Just was martyred about AD 62. So that's roughly the time of James' conversion and the time over which he led over uh, the church at Jerusalem. The Jerusalem council assembled, and in that assembly, James uh, presided over that, that assembly and basically decided a controversy, and the controversy was how do Gentile believers belong in the community, and whether or not they had to specifically obey Jewish law, like circumcision, etc. And James renders the verdict, right? Now, James, the book, doesn't mention any part of that. 
So we we're placing James ahead of that. That happened right around A.D. 48. So likely this book of James, probably the earliest book in circulation, was written around A.D. 46, A.D. 47. James, son of Zebedee, had been martyred just before that. And Acts, I believe it's chapter 12, talks about how Agrippa had uh, James martyred. So that's the author, um, strong guy, in succession to the line of, of uh, the throne of David. Um, he's called by Josephus, James the Just. You think about his father, Joseph. Joseph was a just man. Um, you think about Jesus, obviously Jesus was just. Um, both in succession to the throne of David, and then of course, uh, James would have been the next in line, right? Um, all throughout the scripture, you'll see Peter, James, and John. When Paul goes to visit James to get authority, basically, basically to get approval for all that he was done, he simply calls him James, and he lists James, Peter, and then John. So now James is his displaced uh, Peter in, in a form of leadership at the Church of Jerusalem. So um, that's who he is, strong guy. If the, uh, if the, when he was martyred, if all of those stories are to be believed, he was martyred by being thrown off the temple. He went to basically rebuke some, uh, uh, some folks who were, who were um, essentially wrong, and he got pushed off the top of the temple. If it wasn't the top of the temple, it was off the top of the temple steps. He did not die. So they stoned him, and he still wasn't dead. So they beat him with a club until he died. So this James was was no weakling, um, speaks with authority, right? Um, so let me talk a little bit about that. Um, and what I want to do is I want to, I not only want to talk about that, I want to talk about specifically how God superintends everything over the book. Um, I want to dig into something very quickly. So the thing that I want to get into is the idea of the opening of James. James simply says, right in the opening, I want to read it specifically. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Now this is how beautiful this is. James, a servant. The word there is doulos. Servant actually means slave, bond servant, bond slave. The Jews would have heard that, and immediately what would have come to mind would have been that they came out of Egypt, and they were delivered out of Egypt, delivered from their slavery. God was the one who, with an outstretched arm, delivered them from Egypt, delivered them from slavery. And, and they were also put in bondage after this glorious kingdom, this reign of David and Solomon. And when, Re I think it was uh, Rehoboam, uh, became, was next. It was either Jeroboam or Rehoboam. I think it was Rehoboam was... Next in line, the, the kingdom divided, the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they'd been carried away, the northern tribes by Assyria and the southern tribe by Babylon. So they had been under this oppression and they'd seen slavery yet again. They'd seen bondage yet again. So slavery would have been a big deal. Of God, Elohim, right, in the Hebrew, right, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That and is meant to be, hey, positionally these guys are the same. So I'm servant of God, not and Jesus, as though he's completely separate and either lesser, but that they're the same in authority, power and authority, just revealed in two different distinct persons. This would have been interesting as well, because when he said, 
the Lord, the Kyrios, Jesus, he would affirm the Christian doctrine of Jesus being God, but then he would also have said Jesus, and in Jesus, the name Jesus is actually Yeshua. This would have brought to mind the idea of Joshua, who led them into the promised land. So Yeshua um, is actually Joshua. Or excuse me, uh, when he says the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying Yeshua, which brings to mind Joshua, leading them to the promised land. So he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings, the 12 tribes. Now, who are the 12 tribes? Well, the 12 tribes are none other than the children of Israel. Now, something interesting about James. Do you know that James is actually the Hellenistic version of Jacob? So in the Greek, it's literally Jacob. It's not James. We know the book is James. But this opening statement actually says Jacob, a servant of God. Now, who is Jacob? Well, Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes. And his name was changed to Israel. Israel means prince of God. So James, a servant of God, we could actually read that. Jacob, a servant of God who was elevated to prince of God. And of the Savior, the Lord Yeshua, the one who saves. That God saves because Yeshua means God saves. He's saying, I'm a servant of the God that elevated me to a status of prince. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saved me, the instrument of that salvation and the very one who saves. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, these scattered tribes that have a promise, they would have understood this promise of being united. To the 12 tribes, to my 12 children who've been scattered but have a hope of being reunited. Greetings. Greetings. Picture that. Jacob, your dad, a servant who's been elevated to the status of prince, servant of the Lord God, elevated by God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who saves, the one who's our Messiah, to my 12 lost and discouraged children. Greetings. That's literally the opening statement. Then he gets right into things. Does, does that inform in any way kind of the way that James comes at you? James has about 108 verses, and out of those 108 verses, um, it's said that 54 imperatives come out of those 108 verses. So you can see that James not only is authoritative, but also when, when, as he's um, relaying his note, there's an awful lot of, hey, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. Doesn't it kind of sound like a dad giving tough love to his kid? James was a, separate, a shepherd. A um, couple of other quick things, because I, I want to get through um, some of these panels. I want to go to some of these panels. As I mentioned, the main theme is that, hey, real faith works, and this is how it works. So some of the challenges or some of the difficulties that we want to get through, the panels that we want to look at, I want to definitely look at um, one in the, in the very opening, right after he gets to the idea of, hey, I want to offer you some encouragement, he goes right into count it all joy when you encounter various trials. So I want to get to that panel. I'm going to cover that. I also want to get to the panel of faith versus works, this argument between Paul and, uh, and James, which is really no argument at all. And then I also want to get to another panel where there's some other kind of curious information in the end about 
um, praying over the sick and being healed. And some of the view of faith healing and, and that sort of thing that might come out of James. I want to cover a little bit of that panel. There's other things I want to cover, um, but, but we'll, we'll dive right in and we'll see where we get. So the first one, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter, encounter trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. In Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says to his disciples, and among the hardest teaching, he says, Rejoice whenever they revile you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil things against you in my name, for your reward in heaven is great. It's basically the summary of what he says. He says, Rejoice. We covered in Philippians a, few, a while back about the whole idea of, of uh, rejoicing. In this case, James right here is saying the exact same thing. Count it all joy. Count it all joy when you encounter these various trials. You've been kicked out. There's this big bucket we're going to call joy. And that bucket is our redemption in Christ. And every time you get persecuted, every time you are no longer part of the synagogue, every time that you're being um, beaten or cast into prison or reviled, take that and don't stew on it. Don't be angry about it. Don't blame God for it. Don't justify yourself as though you don't deserve it. Instead, ball it up. Put it in that bucket. Because you've been redeemed and you have a hope. That's panel number one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, God's got this, as my friend Joe Harvey would love to say. God's got this. He's got you right where you want. He wants you. And he's, he's the one who's actually trying to drive Christian character into you. He's actually trying to make you more like Christ. In other words, since you belong to God, you are in the, sc the school of becoming like Christ. And let's remember, Hebrews teaches us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. There we see this Jewish idea of the way we learn is experience, not just ascending to some proposition. He learned obedience through suffering. And this is exactly what James is trying to tell us, is that the way we are uh, conformed to Christ, the way our character starts to reveal God, is that when we encounter these trials, because we will encounter these trials, that we count it joy and we sit under it. We don't try and squirm away from it. We don't curse God. We don't blame God. We don't blame others. We don't simply get angry. We don't try and get out from underneath it like the world would tell us to. We sit under it. Now, how do I know that's true? Because the very, first, the very next thing that James says is, if any of you lacks wisdom, go to God. Well, what's he saying? He's not, he's not moving on to a different panel in the quilt. It's still the same idea of the panel. What's the, what's the idea? If you don't know why you're going through this trial... There's someone who does know why you're going through this trial. Why don't you ask him? And he says with comforting words, and you'll, you'll get this answer. He'll tell you. He'll give you this wisdom. This is what he wants to do. He continues. You have to approach it in faith. You have to sit up under this trial in faith. If you don't, you're double-minded. And that man shouldn't suppose he'll get anything from God, the one who doesn't actually approach it in faith. And then he goes on and he talks about perspective. James is a book all about perspective. And he says, look at the poor man, look at the rich man. and Don't look at one and judge in a certain way. He'll, he'll flesh that more out in chapter 2, but he starts it here. What he's saying here is, have some perspective. These guys that are rich, 
that you feel like they've actually got it better than you, well, that's going to disappear, just like your trial will disappear. As my mom would say, this too will pass. So sit under the trial, let it have its good work. And, and why? Because we're, not only are we becoming more like Christ, but also in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, steadfast, like God's love is steadfast, under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. So literally, he's telling you this is what genuine faith looks like, not to run from the trial, not to immediately try to get out from underneath it. That would be, all the way down to verse 18, that would be one of the panels of the quilt. He's trying to say this quilt is full of the experience of suffering, but this suffering produces godly character, and this godly character results in the crown of life. And so put it in the bucket of joy because you know that those trials equal the crown of life if you sit under them and actually are taught by them. And then he moves on. And he says in verse 19, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And he, what he's trying to say there is, is that what happens when things don't go our way? We get angry, right? Uh, we want things to go our way, but we're actually dependent. James is heavy on the idea that we are fully dependent. That God is sovereign. He's orchestrated this. In fact, in verse 18, he just got finished saying, of his own will, he brought us forth. So we're dependent. Now, just a quick aside. Do you know who's really angry? Well, we are, are, all, are when we sin and we don't repent. We're really angry. Do you know how that mechanic works itself out? Here's what happens. You're immediately accused. Your conscience is immediately pricked. And what you first want to do, if you're not repenting, is you want to justify yourself. And the justification doesn't work because you can't justify yourself. God's justified. You're not justified. The only one that can justify you is God. How does he justify you? Well, through repentance. But you're resisting it, which is why you're angry. This frustration grows and you become angry. And so what's the cure for that? Repentance. Specifically, um, what does he say? He says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all the filthiness and the rampant wickedness and receive the me with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Repent. Repent. Humble yourself. And receive the word, sit under the word, and learn from it, because that's where you're going to receive the truth. And he continues. I want to move on to um, another, uh, another component, another panel of the quilt. James goes in chapter 2, and he talks specifically about poor judgment and that sort of thing. That might be another panel, but the panel I want to get to, <clears throat> panel I want to get to is starting in verse 14. So 14, basically through the rest of that chapter, is another panel in the quilt. Now here's, what the, way, here's the way that works out. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And in fact, he says, very specifically, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. In verse 24, he says, pretty airtight case, right? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
How many of you believe that it's by faith alone? Raise your hand if you believe it's actually by, you're saved by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. Well, James right here is, does he have a bone to put, pick with you? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So I want to get to this panel because I want to put an end to this. There's no debate between James and Paul. It's really easy. They're not talking about the same thing. In Proverbs chapter 30, it reads that the children of wisdom, how's that go? Wisdom is justified by all of her children. That's how it goes. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. What does that mean? Do the children actually justify wisdom? No. What's actually going on there is, is that the evidence that you're wise is that you actually live wisely. And you're actually vindicated as one who is wise. And that's why you're considered a child of wisdom. That's the justification that James has in view here. The the idea of justification here is not that you are forensically justified. You sit before God, not condemned. That's what Paul has in mind. Paul is trying to get you to understand that you are already forgiven from the foundation of the world. In God's eyes, you're already justified, right? And so forensically, as it stands, you are now a child of the king. You belong to God, and nothing can, can stop that from there on out, right? God has got you, and no one can pluck you out of his hand. That's what, that's what Paul's trying to get at. You're justified. No one holds anything against you because God justifies you. In this case, James is talking about something different. What is the brand of faith that you have? Is it the Western variety? You watched a YouTube video. You liked it. You agreed with it. You're justified. You believe. You believe because the YouTube video showed you, or the Instagram, or you read it. And you're like, hey, that sounds right, and so I agree. But then your life is not changed in any way, shape, manner, or form not applied any part of it. You don't even understand what it is that you agree to. We live in that culture today. We've got the world of information at our fingertips. And there's more than enough people to go out there and tell you what all they know. And yet experientially, they don't know any part of it. I would encourage you to actually, if that describes you, to go experience it. Go know it. What James has in view here is the idea of the experience. How do you know? How do you know that this faith is of the faith that Paul is talking about? Well, it's not faith because of the works. It's faith alongside the works. It's how the faith works itself out. It's how it demonstrates that it's actually of the variety that is saving faith. So you see, Abraham was justified, if you look down a little bit further, Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac, not because he was forensically justified, but he proved that he had the kind of faith that God requires, that God gives. He had genuine faith. So do you see the difference there? It's not the idea that you're justified because you go work and you earn it. You can't earn it. God gives it. God is sovereign. He superintends it. Um, You're a dependent. And so God's justification is of his own will he brought us forth. Now, if you're one of those ones who was brought forth, but you say to someone, 
as simple as someone, and he mentions a few different categories, and this specifically, he talks about one who's in need of food and clothing. Before he was talking about the widow and orphan at the end of chapter 1, if you don't have compassion on them, as Paul would say, how does the love of God dwell in you? What James says is it's dead, it's useless, it's not real, you don't belong. So that is, that is another one of these panels that James is trying to communicate to you of an assurance that your faith is of the genuine variety. And so there's, there's the uh, summary of the description or the, uh, the discrepancy between Paul and James. They're actually united on this. There is no disagreement. One is talking about how you're justified before God. The other one says, this is how everyone can see it. He moves on in chapter 3, and in chapter 3, one of the things that he says that I won't get to in full is he says, don't become many teachers. What happens when things don't go your way? You immediately want to tell everybody about how it should be, right? That's exactly what you want to do. But James says, oh, really? You want to tell everybody how it should be? You want to put yourself up on a pedestal and become a teacher? Don't you know you're going to be judged with stricter judgment? You you want to go ahead and show everybody So really what you're saying, just like you should count it all joy when you encounter these trials, what he's really saying is, go ahead, stand up under the judgment. Let's see how that works. Right? He's kind of a put your money where your mouth is. And James has a lot to say about the mouth. And here's the important thing to note about it. Scripture teaches that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth isn't something that is uh, in and of itself, by itself, alone, it is merely the evidence of what's going on already in your heart. And James is trying to say, you want your life judged quickly, with with, uh, more precision? Well, let your thoughts be known if you want to be a teacher. And so, but he, he backs off and he's trying to say, don't be many teachers. That would not be a good idea for you. Instead, sit up under the trial, get godly character. Instead, humble yourself. Don't accuse God. Let God justify you. Let God exalt you. Instead, you be dependent because that's who you are. So that's what he says. One of the, the, what he moves down from there, <clears throat> he talks about, and this is where very, in a very con- condensed format, he actually uh, refers to the Sermon on the Mount. What he says in verse 17, he's contrasting all the anger and the frustration and all of that sort of thing that comes up um, and all of these issuances of the mouth that come out that evidence everything that's going on in your heart and how that it shouldn't be that a good spring produces good water. He moves right from that and he says, that's all demonic. Now you want to know what the Spirit of God is like. He says in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure. And Matthew says, blessed are the pure. Christ says it, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 5. And then it's peaceable, blessed are the peacemakers. It's gentle, blessed are the gentle. It's open to reason, uh, blessed are the meek. It's full of mercy, right? Peacemakers, the merciful, they'll obtain mercy. And good fruits, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's impartial and sincere. 
Jesus says, beware the uh, leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So this is without hypocrisy. So literally, in a very condensed format, James is pointing right directly to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is all throughout James, but it's condensed very tightly in uh, 3.17. We move on to chapter 4. What's most important about chapter... Well, there's lots that are important. What I want to highlight, I should say, in chapter 4... is the idea that we are selfish and self-centered. And oftentimes when we go through these sorts of trials and difficulties, we're mostly thinking about ourselves, how it's impacting us and what we go do about it. And what was going on at the time was these, uh, these early believers were, were weary and they were growing um, from this intense pressure. They were growing disillusioned and they were actually feeding on each other. Um, and as they did that, what James is trying to point out is, is that that's you. And you're asking for all these things, but you're not receiving them. And the reason you're not receiving them is because you're actually being selfish. You're not trying to get godly character. You're trying to promote yourself. And that's why you ask and you don't receive. Instead, be wretched and mourn and weep. In, in verse 9, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll exhaust, exalt you. Rather than exploit the people around you to elevate yourself, humble yourself. Look at God's economy and how inverted it is to the way we think. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. We're dependent. He goes on to say, hey, uh, don't boast about what you think you're going to do and go make a profit and all of that sort of thing. We're going to go here and we're going to do all these things again. You're dependent. That's the whole point of this chapter is that you're a dependent. It's God who's the one who you should seek. It's God who's the one who will elevate you. But the idea is, is that you're to sit under it. You're to become dependent. You're to be reminded always that you are like James. You're a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not above your master. He faced persecution. Why should you be different? And then chapter 5, this is the last panel I'm going to look at before we conclude. He starts out with a very specific uh, rebuke against the rich. And the idea here is, is not that it's a sin to be rich. The idea here is, is that there's all of this want and need going on. And in the midst of all the want and need, there are those who have the resources that could actually be of benefit, but instead they hoard it to themselves and they keep it. And what he's saying, just like when God said to Cain that Abel's blood cried out to him, what James is saying is that the rusty stuff that you have that you've hoarded for yourself, that's worthless, it could have been used for those who were in need, but they're actually dying for want. You've hoarded it up and it's crying out to God. Specifically, it says, the Lord of hosts. When the scripture talks about the Lord of hosts, it's actually a military reference. Um, it not only talks about his lordship over uh, all of creation, but it also specifically talks about the idea. The idea that is conjured is the idea that he commands all the angels. And it was the Lord of hosts that delivered Israel. It was the Lord of hosts who fought for Israel. So when he's talking about the Lord of hosts, He's talking about severe judgment to those 
who withheld the good that could have been done. Remember in in the end of four, he said, to the one who knows to do good but doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So the final panel, starting in verse 14, is there any among you that's sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, in verse 15, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another for, uh, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is great power as it is working. What's he talking about? He's not talking about faith healing. He's not talking about some ceremony where you put oil on somebody. Again, there's rich imagery here. What he's talking about is the idea that uh, someone is sick, they've grown weary uh, under all the trial and the labor. And this is referencing the idea of sin. So those ones who are weary go to the elders of the church. The weak go to the strong. Let them pray over him. Let them encourage him. Let him pray over him. Let the elders build you up. Let them bear your burden. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. There's symbolism here. It's not literal oil. You would rub oil in. It's the idea of you're working on the person. You're actively engaged with the person, working on them. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick. And so when they come to faith, if they don't have faith, or if they're restored in their faith, the promise is that God raises him up. And if he committed sins, he'll be forgiven. The promise is, is that God forgives. God is a God of mercy. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. In other words, you should operate in a community and you bear each other's burdens that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Commit yourself to prayer. How often do we pray? Do we actually have faith in our prayer? He immediately compares it to the narratives of of Elijah and how Elijah stopped the rain. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave its rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Brothers, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings a sinner back from wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Think about it. Think back in Matthew. I believe it's Matthew. It's also, I think, recorded in Luke when these friends had someone who couldn't walk, and they had him on a pallet, and they couldn't get in to see Jesus. They wanted him to be healed. But they couldn't because the crowds were too big. So what did they do? They went up on top of the roof and they opened up the roof and they let him down right where Jesus was. And what does the scripture say? That Jesus, and note this, seeing their faith, healed him, forgave him his sins because that was immediately after Jesus said, hey, which is easier? Tell him to take up his pallet and walk? Or that, his, you know, or that his sins are forgiven. But so that you know that the Son of Man has the power on earth to forgive sins, arise, take your bed, and walk. It's what happens in that passage. Seeing their faith. The idea is that these friends loved the man who was on the pallet, and they brought him to Jesus. The elders in the church are to love the people around them, and so when they go through trials and difficulties and hardships, they're to help Bring them to Jesus. That's what's in view here. Does that make sense? Okay. 
James starts abruptly, and it finishes abruptly. You're dismissed.